said our motto verse, the King's Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And what I want to do in the evenings over the next uh, three or four weeks is to sort of think a bit more practically and, and, and be it more of a training time as we think about uh, what it is to do reach, build, send in the light of the King's Commission. And so uh, maybe you'd want to just pray that we will, as we go through lots of scriptures, that it would be uh, beneficial to us all and feed us and strengthen us as God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity of meeting together. We thank you that all over the world your gospel is bearing fruit and that uh, this commission that you gave to your apostles uh, 2,000 years ago uh, is being fulfilled as people even here from all over the world are present uh, who are worshipping and praising you. And we thank you that all over the world today there will be people worshipping you uh, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this. And we pray, Lord, even as we're aware that the Great uh, Commission is not yet complete, that there are still many people groups and, and that have never heard the gospel. And there are still so many nations who, uh, like our own, where the great majority are far off from you so that we, we, we pray that you would lead us and guide us as a, as a church and as individuals that we may know the part that we can play in obeying your son's command. We ask this, that you may be glorified and that uh, we may be a light to the city of Edinburgh here. In Christ's precious name, amen. Well, as we think about um, the Great Commission, uh, reaching out with the gospel is the part I want to think about tonight. And as we think about sharing the gospel with people and, and, and telling people about Jesus, I think there's a danger of great self-consciousness. Um, what tends to happen is that people become Christians and they just tell everybody. They're just so excited and they, it's, just, they just, it's just the most amazing thing they found and they just tell everybody, anyone they meet. And then they hang out with Christians like us and they learn that you're actually supposed to be a little bit more uptight about it and nervous and just, you know, I don't know, it just becomes a big ordeal. And, 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 and why does that happen? Uh, what, what happens in this shift? I don't know. And sometimes as we think about the, the, the Great Commission, we can think that really uh, it's just all about talking about Jesus. And of course it is talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But we think in our heads, we get into a certain framework, we think, well, it's, unless I've kind of on this bus trip shared um, everything from God as creator right through to the final judgment with this individual, I've not, I've not shared the gospel. And yet, uh, really, it doesn't seem a very natural thing to do on the bus. And, 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 and we get quite nervous and uptight, and, uh, and, and we end up just saying nothing at all. Is evangelism just for those with the gift of the gab? Uh, people who can just talk on and on in the pulpit while you want to go home. I don't know. Is it just for people like that? Well, I want us to think more broadly about this. I, I listened to a talk by uh, John Dixon that he gave at the Evangelical Ministry Assembly in London uh, last week. And I just want to share you, uh, really the outline of his talk just to encourage us about the different ways that we can be involved as a church in the Great Commission. Um, in the mornings, basically, we're going to work through books of the Bible 
um, over these coming evenings, I'm going to give you the best bits of things that I've read and studied elsewhere and just regurgitate it for you. Because the chances are you're probably not going to come across it, so I want to share it with you. So tonight I want to acknowledge that, I, uh, that a lot of what I've got here is care of John Dixon, who's an Aussie evangelist and historian. As John studied the Bible, and maybe you've noticed this yourself, one of the most surprising things for him as he looked at uh, the most common activity that is urged in Scripture with relation to the Great Commission it was this, the need for prayer. That if we're going to engage in, in mission, then it begins with prayer. It begins with praying. This is the most regularly used gospel-promoting activity that is advocated in Scripture. Let me show you this. It's from all the way from the Old Testament. Keep your uh, turn to one, uh, 2 Chronicles 6, verse 32. 2 Chronicles 6. I didn't put down page numbers. This is going to be fun. The pressure of looking at Bible verses in front of people. After 1 Kings, after 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 6. I use the ESV as I prepare, and then I get up here with the NIV. So here we go. 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 32. 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 32. This is a part of Solomon's prayer. The, the, the great temple has been built, and Solomon has built a platform, and he is praying for the people. If you were here last Sunday morning, you'd have heard Alan McKinnon preaching uh, on this passage. And part of the prayer that he prays in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 32 is this. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house that I have built bears your name. So here we are in the Old Testament. Here is Solomon really praying that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, will come to know God the way that they, as God's people, know God. He's asking God on behalf of the nations that they would come to know him the way that they, as the Israelites, know him. Let's turn forward to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, and see the Lord Jesus uh, enjoining such prayer as well. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. You find that on page 974 in these uh, church Bibles, page 974. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So here we have this amazing section in Matthew. It's a summary section of the ministry of Jesus. And we're about to go on to chapter 10 where he sends out the 12 on mission to, to, um, 
to do the sort of ministry that he's been doing to proclaim uh, the good news of the kingdom and to heal people. And in this hinge section where we have a summary of, of, of what Jesus has done, we get to the heart of the Lord Jesus. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is a very particular compassion he looks at the crowds, and it's not so much their social needs, their, their poverty or their hunger. Of course, these things are important. They're, they're things that we care about. But his compassion is particularly for the fact that they do not know the shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And really, as we think about the Great Commission, it's very easy to be cold and mechanical and actually get into some sort of weird guilt trip, but really it flows out of this same heart of compassion that God has, that the Lord Jesus has, a compassion for the lost, to see that people are like sheep without a shepherd. And, and part of what we do is we pray, is what I think we're praying that God would shape our hearts in the same way, that we would have the same love for the lost, that we would have uh, spiritual glasses on to see that people's greatest needs is not so much education or, or health, or um, housing. Of course, these are important, but the most important thing is their spiritual condition, that they are lost, that they are separated from God. They are, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so how does Jesus uh, respond out of that passion, out of that compassion? It is a call to prayer, isn't it? When you, when you care for the lost, what, do you, what should you do? The first thing you should do is that you should pray. Jesus says, verse 38, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So he turns to his disciples and he says, do you see this? Pray to the Lord to send out workers. So no doubt they started praying. If Jesus told you to do that, I bet they started doing it. And guess what happens then? He sends them out. They're the answer to the prayer. <laughs> but it begins with prayer, doesn't it? We've got to ask the Lord to change our hearts, shape our hearts, to have compassion for people, and then to see the great need, to see that there is a harvest, and to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, to maybe even change our hearts, that we may be amongst those who go out. Think about uh, Paul's prayers. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says this. I'll just uh, read it to you. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So what's going on in Paul's prayer life? It's a heartfelt, prayerful petition to the Lord that his fellow people would come to acknowledge their Messiah, that they might be saved. Or think about uh, Paul before Agrippa. Look at Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, and you'll find this on page number 1124. 1124. Acts chapter 26. We're keeping the exercise tonight so that you keep warm, you see. Keep the fingers moving. Blood to your fingers. Acts 26, verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, remember Paul has been on trial before Agrippa, and has been sharing something of the Christian hope with Agrippa, even as he's on trial. 
And Agrippa says to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. See, what's, been, what's Paul been doing in preparation for this day in court? He's been in prayer, isn't he? And what's he been praying about? He's not been praying so much, Lord, get me out of these chains. I think that's what I'd be praying. Lord, get me out of these chains. He's praying, Lord, I pray that everyone in that courtroom would just, would just come to trust you the way that I'm trusting you. They'd come to know the gospel the way that I know the Lord Jesus. Lord, would you, would you do that for them? Isn't that amazing? That's Paul's prayer life. That, that's his compassion for those around him. Is he prays for the salvation of unbelievers. And then Paul's injunction to the churches is to do just the same. Turn on to Ephesians chapter 6. Philippians, uh, back. Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. I always envied those kids in Sunday school who had the little pages where you, you could press it and open to the pass. I always thought that was cheating when they did the Bible run. I think I need one of those tonight. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. His his urging to the church in Ephesus is this. Ephesians 6, verse 19. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Why does he urge them to pray for him? Well, he must have been tempted to bottle it, don't you think? And, and, and he's praying, look, please pray for me that I don't bottle it. That I will fearlessly, in that environment, proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Or you could think of 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 3 verse 1. Paul says this, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it is as it was with you. Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly. And when people hear it, they will honor it. Prayer is vital in the work of the Great Commission. Well, let's look to Colossians 4, verse 2 to 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There it is. Colossians 4, verse 2 to 3. You'll find that on page 1184. 1184. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's a good verse for us as we have a week of prayer coming up, isn't it? I'll be there tomorrow morning, 7.15. I hope you'll be with me. I'll be praying whether you're there or not. Well, you can pray that I wake up to the alarm. Anyway, Colossians 4 verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. See how vital the work of prayer is? See, before he actually goes on to tell them, actually, about how they can uh, give a reason for the hope that they have, he actually urges them to pray. He says, the first thing you should do when you open your mouth is to open it in prayer. Pray for those who would preach the gospel. 
And in prayer, we're lifting up the work of the gospel above mere circumstances. And here's the irony. There he is. He's in chains. And he's saying, pray that there will be an open door for our message. See, prayer means even our circumstances don't hinder the work of the gospel. God can work beyond our circumstances, through our circumstances. And he urges them to pray for him. As he spreads the gospel, pray that he do it clearly as he should. Now, I'm not very good at praying on my own. I find that my mind does this, just goes all over the place. And so I find it a great help to pray with other people. Actually, I've started praying out loud. It stops my mind getting distracted. But it's a great blessing to pray with others. So why don't you consider coming to one of the sessions or all the sessions this week so we can pray together that God would be at work, that God would open a door for his message here in Edinburgh, that God would open a door um, for the gospel to spread rapidly in this city. Do you think this is a, a climate where the word is spreading rapidly? I don't think so. I think it feels very stony. It feels like we're walking in syrup. It feels like this, uh, it's a tough environment for the gospel. And so, of course, that's a great time to pray for the work of the gospel that would spread rapidly. Second way that prayer, uh, second way that we can advance the gospel. First is prayer. Second is giving. The New Testament speaks a lot about making financial contributions for the cause of the gospel. Uh, Jesus commands uh, when he sends the 12 and the 72 out, he tells them, don't take money bags. Uh, people will provide for you. And when Paul uh, summarizes the teaching of the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14, he says this, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Or turn to my favorite book, hopefully our favorite book at this moment, Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 and 5. Let's remind ourselves of it. There, of course, is Paul. He's in prison. He spends a lot of time in prison, Paul. And uh, the church in Philippi hears of it, and they send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is sent with money and a care package. It's a 14-day journey uh, from the Philippian church to probably Rome, where he is. And this is what he says as he, as he sends back a thank you letter. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that partnership has been uh, a varied, uh, lots of activities, but I think definitely connected there is the partnership of giving. Turn over to chapter 4. We're going to examine this in the coming weeks in more depth. But look at chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that it, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. 
Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now listen to this extravagant language. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Their giving to Paul was a key expression of gospel partnership and of advancing the gospel. Giving is a very significant way that we progress the gospel. On Wednesday, we had Kerry Fee with us at the missionary prayer meeting. And she shared about how she is uh, working with international students there in Belfast. She originally started about uh, one, one and a half days a week. But thankfully, uh, the giving has increased and now she can work full-time reaching and connecting the gospel with international students, many who do not know the gospel. She's running many, many Bible studies with non-Christians from all over the world. And how is she doing that? Well, because people like us at Charlotte are financially supporting the work that she's doing. Our giving is advancing the cause of the gospel in Belfast. It's, it, it, sometimes we think it's a, it's a small thing, but it's not. This is a very significant way that we can advance the gospel. Uh, there are many wonderful mission agencies and ministries and churches that are reaching and connecting the gospel with people. And how are they doing it? Because people are giving money. It is a very significant thing when we give money to the work of the gospel. When we give, we're not just spectators on the sideline, but we are playing on the pitch. We are just as involved as those who are speaking those words. Um, If I've had the privilege of leading some people to Christ or anything like that, part of the reason I've had the opportunity to do that was because at Theological College, I nearly gave up. After year one, uh, we pretty much had... uh, I was working two jobs as a dentist, part-time, working in a ministry job, and uh, we had a few kids. It was kind of hard. I was working all the hours. It wasn't working out very well. And after nearly one year, I was nearly about to give up and think, let's go home. And then I was uh, speaking at a church, and a lady came up to me at the end of the church, and she said, I'd like to give you a gift. And I said, well, that's very, very kind. Uh, She said, tell me a bit about you. I don't know much about you. So I told her a bit about me. And she still wanted to give me the gift, which was quite amazing. And so she gave me an envelope. I put it in my jacket. I said, thank you very much. It's so kind of you to uh, give that gift. And uh, I drove home, and I gave it to my wife. said, we've received a gift from the Lord. She said, oh, right. So she opened it up, and someone had given us a check for $20,000, which enabled me to complete my final two years of theological study. And so I, I keep thinking about this lady. Um, you know, I was in Spokane, had the privilege of, of sharing the gospel with people, seeing people come to Christ. I think actually her giving was connected with that advance that took place. Our giving is so significant. We mustn't underestimate that. Thirdly, living a gospel life. Here's another way that we see the Great Commission uh, advance. 
This is a surprising theme in the Bible. Turn back to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, page 969. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You, and the word is plural there. Jesus staring at his disciples. You, plural, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Around this time, uh, the Jewish people used to think that Jerusalem was the light to the nations, uh, off, off a, a, a view of Isaiah 49.6 that says this, I'll make you a light for the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And Jesus picks up that imagery and that language and he turns to his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. You little small group of disciples, you are the light of the world. Isn't that extraordinary? About 12 guys. And how are they going to be that light that's going to bring salvation to the ends of the world? Well, by letting people see your good deeds that result in people praising the Father in heaven. Good deeds that bring praise to God. Of course, we all know good deeds do not make us saved. But when we get saved, it results in a life of good works. And as you engage in those good works, depending on God's grace, uh, Jesus says we are being a light to the world. And we need to read on to the Sermon on Mount to see what those good deeds look like. It's about uh, an attitude of heart, about being poor in spirit, about uh, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who love their enemies. And you read on, it's about those who have uh, good marriages, who, who give to the poor in secret, and so on. You could just read on what sort of things those are. It's interesting to, to note that uh, Paul's giving project to the famished believers in Palestine, you know, he makes much of this collection that he wants to take up in Corinth and other places, that the, that the, that the Gentiles will support the impoverished Jewish church. That's the first mention of an international aid project ever in history. It's the Christians who did that. Apparently, in year 251, the church in Rome was daily supporting 1,500 widows and orphans. They were making this provision for their people. It was such a problem... Uh, and it, that, that in the 4th century, the pagan emperor, Julian, wrote to pagan priests demanding that the temple start providing welfare just like the Christians were, were doing it because the Christians were taking everyone by storm with them through their care program. Christians acted upon this. They let their good deeds be known in light of the gospel and they became the light of the world. The lives that we live as regular Christian people, as we love people who other people don't love, as we care for people that others don't care, as we show compassion and kindness, can make a huge difference. Or think about 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. You'll find that on page 1219. 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Peter's instruction to wives with non-Christian husbands. 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, you can't be brought to faith in Christ without the word. Uh, That's there in the text itself, if any of them do not believe the word. But even though the wife may not be the one, or the uh, the spouse may not be the one to share the word, their life can be the reason why their spouse are brought to faith. Uh, I've talked to um, mainly wives, although sometimes it's husbands with unbelieving spouses. And um, you know, they said they've tried putting leaflets everywhere, and that really doesn't help much. And they can badger, and that doesn't really help much. But actually living out your life in obedience to Christ, loving your husband um, unconditionally, Uh, can be a phenomenal witness. And I have met those who've come to Christ many decades after us by the witness of their spouse. We can think about Titus 3. running out of time, so I won't do that. I want to tell you about Greg. I knew Greg at Moore College. He uh, grew up in a non-Christian family. He had a big decision growing up. Should he go surfing or scuba diving? And uh, and yet he had no knowledge of, of, of Christian faith, none whatsoever. But the thing that brought him to Christ was this. His best friend was a Christian. And he used to love to hang around the, the family there. And they kind of took, you know, had him in a lot. And it, it was just as he observed the way that his friend's mum and dad related, relating together, the way they spoke together, the way they loved and cared. It was so different to his own home that he just had to say, what is it that makes the difference? He saw an attractive life of godliness that commended the gospel. And that's what Titus says that to the slaves, is that the way that they act, if, they, if they're people who are, not, uh, uh, who are being subject to their, their masters without uh, talking back to them, not stealing for them, but showing that they can be fully trusted, that in every way they can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. We can commend the gospel to the world by the lives that we live in the workplace. Uh, you, you know you're not a slave, but you feel like a slave. But the workplace, there you are. You can commend the gospel. You can make the gospel, which is already so attractive, you can make it uh, appealing in the way that you live in the workplace. And we need to see the breadth of the mission. See, when we pray, we're furthering the gospel. When we give, we're furthering the gospel. When we live for the sake of the gospel, we're furthering the gospel. We can be full partners in the spread of the gospel, reaching out with the gospel in these ways. But of course, also by proclaiming the gospel. And uh, there's uh, three ways I want to quickly talk about this. Number one, the New Testament speaks about the fact that some are evangelists. Uh, there's a gift there, isn't there, that some are evangelists. That word evangelist apparently is just taking the word gospel and adding er at the end, gospeler. Uh, someone who um, is particularly good at just explaining the truth of the gospel. Someone who has a passion uh, for lost people. I, we're all supposed to care for people. We've met people, haven't we, who've got a great passion for lost people. And when they speak they, about the gospel, they do unusually clearly and succinctly, like me right now. 
Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. There he is in a settled context in Ephesus. And he's supposed to get on and do the work of evangelists amongst his duties there. Uh, In Ephesians 4, we have uh, this statement in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. Not everyone is equally gifted at sharing the gospel with people. We need to recognize that. Some particularly are gifted as evangelists. But there's a way that we all are involved in evangelism. Every Christian, every Sunday is involved in evangelism. All of us declaring God's praises together is a great means of witness to the world. When we gather to uh, praise him, it is, a, uh, it is a secondary function as a witness to the unbelieving world. You see this uh, intention right the way back in the, in the Psalter, in Psalm 96. Turn back to Psalm 96 with me. Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Do you see this? As God's ancient people gathered to worship and praise, it had a role as a witness to the world. Paul, uh, Peter, uh, picks up this language in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says this in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The weekly worship that we have as God's people is part of our witness. Our corporate life as a church is a key way that the gospel is commended and proclaimed in Edinburgh. In 1 Corinthians 14, uh, it, it speaks of this long section of the value of intelligible prophecy. And it speaks of, of, of the real point of this is when you get to verse 24. Not only is it edifying to believers, but in verse 24 it says this, If an outsider comes in, an unbeliever, someone who doesn't understand, who comes in while everybody's prophesying, he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, and so he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Every Christian, every Sunday is involved in evangelizing as we proclaim and worship this great God together. Our corporate gathering can bring conviction of sin and acknowledgement of God uh, to, 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 to make unbelievers who are present amongst us worshipers themselves. It can be an act of evangelism. And so my question is, when people come, what do they see? Do, do they see us enthusiastically with heartfelt praise engaging with God? Because I think that's the, the context that, that uh, Paul is envisaging there in Corinth. It was not a quiet meeting in Corinth, that's for sure. And 
I've talked to non-Christians, you know, who've come here to Charlotte, who've been profoundly moved by what they've experienced here. I think sometimes we forget. It becomes common to us, doesn't it? Uh, there was a Hindu man who was here uh, a number, about a month or so ago, and uh, I don't think he'd ever been in a Christian church before, and he was part of our meeting. He saw baptisms, and he came up to me greatly affected. He said, what, what is going on here? Uh, at Don Healy's funeral, um, it was packed, and uh, there was a couple of guys sitting in front of me, didn't look like they were regular churchgoers, and I chatted to them afterwards, and they turned to me, and, they, and, they, and one of them said to me, this place has got quite an ambiance, hasn't it? He, you know, he just didn't know how to describe what he was experiencing, but the hope of the Christian life, the, the praising of God's people, the prayers, the reading from his word, had a profound impact on them. And we should not minimize the significance of every Christian every Sunday as witness. And lastly, every believer is to give an answer for the faith. Here we see um, the ways that each one of us are engaged in this uh, proclamation. And, and this is something that Peter and Paul agree on. 1 Peter 3 verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Doug Healy. It's not Don. Doug Healy. Why did I say Don? Doug Healy. Anyway, I'm glad I got that to my head. Uh, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Colossians 4 verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone. I think all believers share in the privilege of speaking up for Jesus in conversation. In fact, Paul makes an analogy there in Colossians 4 between his proclamation and the conversational word of the individual Christian. Um, I don't think I put this up here, but let me read it to you in the, in the ESV. Colossians 4 says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to proclaim the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, he says. And then he says to them, Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's a link between his proclamation as an apostle and their conversational words. The bold proclamation of the apostle is equivalent really here and of equal significance to the daily conversations of the average believer. And we should not underestimate the power of a simple answer or a brief conversation. I don't think we should labor under the thought that every bus ride we have to share everything from creation to the new creation with every single person. But maybe God would give us that opportunity just to say something about Jesus, something that would provoke thought, something that would just turn the conversation towards the things that really matter. Todd Koyama is a banker in Spokane, and he was chatting to a human resource lady one day, and she said to him, how are you doing? And he answered, better than I deserve. And she went, oh, no, don't be hard on yourself. Are you? And he said, no. He said, you know, 
I have sinned so many times that I deserve God's judgment. And every day, God treats me with amazing grace. I have a way better day than I deserve. She went, wow. That's, that's amazing. And a week later, he had to go back to see it, and she started talking about it again. Who knows, that small little thing that can be said, that one little phrase that God can use and take up. And, and, and really, as, as, as we speak to people, we need to hear what the apostle says and, and, and be full of grace, seasoned with salt. We're not trying to win who's the best dog in arguing. We're trying to commend the Lord Jesus to them. And God in his grace can use each one of us to do that. And we, as God's people together, can reach out. I want to tell you about my friend Russ. I wish, I hope you meet him one day. I hope you'll come over and visit. Um, Eric was his neighbor. Can you put the next slide on? There's a picture of them. Eric's the guy with the scarf. Russ and Lisa, um, well, when Eric first met them, they weren't Christians. They weren't going anywhere. And uh, Russ and uh, Eric, they, they basically ended up finding each other on Sunday afternoons, putting rubbish in the dumpster, as we call it over there. They used to share a dumpster, and they used to end up doing their garden waste and stuff. They find themselves there most Sunday afternoons, and the conversation would go something like this. Uh, Russ would go, hey, Eric, how are you doing? Yeah, fine. How, what have you been up to today? Well, you know, I went to church today, and, you know, this is what I learned about God today. And he just say a very simple thing about what he learned about God, what he learned about the Lord Jesus. And, and he said, you know, it, it's just it's great, my church. Why don't you come to church with me uh, one Sunday? Do you want to come next Sunday? And Russ would go, No. They would do this conversation each week. Russ kept saying no. For a whole year, he said no. 18 months, he said no. And nearly every week. We reckon that Eric asked Russ probably about 200 times to come to church over two years. He just, you know, same conversation. Tell him something. Hey, you should come. It's great. You should come. Would you like to come next week? No. And in the end, Russ said, yes, I'll come. And so Russ and Lisa came. And I remember the Sunday they came. And um, they came to church. It was very different to what they expected. And uh, they were amazed um, to, to look around, see people singing like they meant it. Uh, they heard a sermon that they understood uh, about Jesus. And they heard things about themselves and about God they'd never heard before. And... Um, People were interested in them. In fact, they remember one particular guy. His name was Mark Davis. And Mark just went up and just invested time. He showed genuine interest in loving them. Just asked them questions. Really, really. That made such an impact on them. That, that, that this guy was so interested in them. And they were amazed. They came back the following week. Uh, I decided I'd just go and call on them. The week after that, knocked on their door. They welcomed me in. They gave me a piece of pie, because it's America. A piece of pie and some ice cream. And we talked. And I just asked them about their past experiences, what they'd known of church, and finally got to share the gospel with them. Just went through two ways to live. And at the end, I asked them in turn, you know, which way you, would you like to live? I'd like to live God's way. I'd like to submit to Jesus. Which way are you living now? I'm living for myself. Would you like to do change now? Would you like to pray? To... Yes, they both would. And led them in prayer to trust the Lord Jesus. And... Um, Russ would tell you that his marriage was 
was getting shakier and shakier. He was drinking too much. Uh, things were not going the right way. And, and not only did the Lord Jesus save him for eternity, but Jesus saved their marriage and, and strengthened their family life. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And they came home. And they're going on great guns today. In fact, he teaches the two ways to live training course and says to people, you've got to learn this because this is how I came to Christ. They are so thankful to Eric. See, Eric is the hero there, isn't he? Would you have given up after a hundred? I give up after about three sometimes. Eric didn't. Kept asking, kept asking, kept asking. And you see how, in a sense, the whole church was involved. You see, our praying lifts the work of the gospel above mere circumstances. Our financial contributions are a full partnership in the gospel. Our good works beautify the gospel preached. The evangelists amongst us herald the gospel in a focused way. Our heartfelt praise together is more compelling than we realize. And our daily brief answers and encouragements and responses to people can have a huge effect on those around us. In fact, the whole of our lives can be lived for the cause of Christ together, that we may be alive to the people here in Edinburgh. What an exciting privilege is ours. You want to be in on this? You're not sure? Compare it with other things you do in your life. Do you want to be in on this? Seeing people stand there on the final day praising God for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth because we were in partnership together. I mean, isn't that why partly we do this? Surely it is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that all over the world your gospel is bearing fruit. We thank you for the promise of your presence as we go. That you are calling out people to be part of your people that will praise you for all eternity and father we grieve to see a world that is so broken sheep without a shepherd and we pray that you would grow our love and compassion and help us to see how we together can fulfill this king's commission here in Edinburgh and from this church throughout the whole world We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.